John chapter 17 this morning, and we're going to look at three verses. I'm only going to be dealing with the first one, but they're all three connected. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at this same text. John 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 21 and going down to verse 23. John 17, 21, that they, may, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I pray you bless the reading of your word, and this time that we have in the preaching of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in the John 17, verse 20, our Lord began to pray for those in the future, for those who would believe on Him through the preaching of the Word of God. He's also praying not only for those who would be converted, but for the churches that would come into existence as they are born again as they call upon the name of the Lord, as they are baptized and added to the Lord's assembly. He's praying for those that will believe. He's praying for the continual function of His churches. The unity that is mentioned here in verse 21, the unity of the Lord's churches is an integral part of, the, of His ministry of prayer. I hope you are seeing that. I hope you are grasping that as we go down through this. This already has been mentioned. John 17, verse 11, where he says in John 17, verse 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to Thee. Holy Father, keep through Thine own name those whom Thou hast given Me, that they may be one as we are. We've already looked at it, and we've already seen it, and we're going to pick it back up again here in verse 21 through 23. In verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me. And then verse 22, and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, where it says, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. This becomes a theme in the next three verses. And it covers a great deal of, of ground and uh, a lot of theology. And the focus this morning is going to be on verse 21. Verse 21 says, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. And then goes on to say that they also may be one in us. And then the third point, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And so we're going to break this down this morning 
verse by verse or or statement by statement. I'm going to take the second half of the first statement. First, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. The unity that he is praying for is exhibited in the Godhead. And that's already been addressed, but I'm going to pick it up again this morning. This oneness, this unity spoken of in this verse is the same unity displayed in the Godhead. We need to grasp that. Because there's all kinds of definitions about unity that are out there in Christendom. The unity that he is praying for is the kind of unity expressed and displayed in the Godhead. The word Godhead, children, refers to the fact that God is one. There is one true and living God. There is only one God, and He cannot be divided into any parts. God is one and is always one. He cannot be divided into any parts. You and I can be divided up. God cannot be. Churches can be divided. God cannot be. So, there's one aspect of things. The word then refers to the Godhead that cannot be divided. But, within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. And you say, Brother Pat, you just said to us that there's only one God. Now you're saying that in that God there are three persons. How can you then make the statement that they cannot be divided? There's a mystery here, but the statement is true. There is one God and God is always one. Always. And yet three distinct persons. Each person is distinct. The Father is not the Son, as some teach. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not the Father. Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are each distinct individual persons. And each person has his own purpose in the uh, salvation of God's people. Each one is in his purpose in agreement with the other two. That is, the Son of God has a, a purpose in saving sinners that the other two have agreed to. The Father has a purpose that the other two have agreed to and the Spirit has a purpose that the other two have agreed to. They are in agreement. They're one in their purpose, though each one has a distinct purpose. We need to grasp that because the question arises as to which unity is our Lord praying for? Is He praying that His people be one like they are one, one undivided person or entity? Or is he praying that the distinctions in the Lord's church are there and each person within the Lord's church is distinct from the other and each has a purpose in the overall purposes of God? And they're to be united in that. Which one is he praying for? Because when you ask, when you read that they may be one, you cannot put your own definition on it. 
Which one? Is it one as in one entity? Or one as in distinct entities having separate purposes accomplishing one great end? I believe it's the second one. No no person within the Godhead functions without complete agreement with the other. The unity prayed for by our Lord Jesus Christ is this kind of unity. It is that each person within the Lord's churches understand their distinction in the church, understand that as a member of the church they are a distinct individual and understand that God has a purpose for them and that they are to be unified with the whole assembly in that purpose. Let me just drop something here. I've pastored since 1979. On occasion, there have been people come to me and say, Brother Pat, I believe God wants me to do thus and thus. Now, as the pastor, they're seeking my counsel, and so I'm, I'm here on the other side of the, of the table or other side of the desk or face-to-face here sitting with them. And my purpose as pastor is to seek to determine if that, <laughs> if that is God's will for this church. And the church's purpose is to seek whether that is God's will for this church. And very occasion, on, on, on rare occasions, I've had to say to people, that is not God's will. I had someone come to me, Brother Pat, I believe God wants me to support this ministry and I want to give my money for this ministry through this church and I want this church to send my money to that ministry and I said, do you know what that ministry preaches and teaches? Or I just like them. I listen to them on TV. I think I need to do what I can to support them. No, do you realize what they are preaching and teaching? You want to join you want this church to join you in sending money to a ministry that is false that preaches a false gospel i cannot do that i will not allow that knowingly in my assembly and nor will the church if i were to present this to the church stand up with one voice and say we agree with sister so and so or brother so and so in this matter because they would say well what is this ministry Teach and preach. So there's a division there. They're not unified in their purpose. I believe this actually happened in a a church I was pastoring. I believe God wants me to go out from this church and start another church. And I want this man here to go with me. We are in, we, two of us, are in agreement with this. And uh, I know both men, have known them for years, and uh, know that neither one is called to the gospel ministry, and know that they are uh, um, at odds with the church and want to get out somehow gracefully and want to just go start another church. And so I said, well, I don't believe it's God's will. Neither one of you can teach or preach. Uh, and you want to go start a church. 
And you want to lead and be elders in this church. I don't believe that's God's will, but we will set it before the congregation. And we set it before the congregation. And the church said, no. Not only are neither of you qualified, but you have been causing problems in this assembly. And you just want to get out and go do your own thing. We cannot agree that that is God's will. And they left anyway without the consent of the assembly. So you see what I'm saying here. Their purposes were at odds with the local church. It wasn't just their pastor ruling it over them, but the whole assembly could see this is not right. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so what we find our Lord praying for here is not a unity of nature that we would all be one entity, one undivided entity, but a unity of purpose. A unity of purpose. Our Lord is praying for His churches to be united in their purpose of existence. Here's a question that a lot of people cannot answer. What is the purpose of a local church? Does the New Testament even address that issue? Do we have a purpose for existing? If that the New Testament teaches that we have a purpose for our existence, what is it? And if we learn what it is, we are to be about doing that. So our Lord is praying that His churches would be united in their purpose for, of existence. Our Lord is praying that His churches have a unity of purpose for life and living. And the unity uh, that is revealed in spiritual things and in spiritual ends or purposes. But part of the reason there is so much division among those who claim to be the Lord's churches is because they no longer understand their purpose for existence. Why are we here? Are we here just to tickle our ears and have a good time and clap our hands and stomp our feet and go out of here pumped up in the flesh? Is that all we're about? What are we here for? What are we organized as a church to accomplish? What is the purpose of joining a church? Is there just to put your name on the roll? What is the reason for all of these things? And so, the second part of that first statement is our Lord's request in this portion of His prayer is this, that they all may be one. One now in purpose, as I've explained previously. So, this prayer presupposes two things. He is praying that they all may be one. So what does that mean? That there is a possibility first of division. Or why would He pray? That they be united. There's a possibility then among the Lord's churches for division. And the second presupposition is 
there's a possibility that a church can function in unity. Those two things are in that one statement. I'm praying that they would be one. What does that mean? It's possible that they're not going to be. So I'm praying for it. And it's possible that they can be. So I'm praying for it. And so what do we see in the Scriptures? First, we see the possibility of division within the Lord's churches, among the Lord's people. So it raises the question, is it possible that genuine Christians who are part of genuine churches may find themselves at odds one with another? Is that possible? How can it be? If you understand Christianity, how can that be? But it is possible. Not only is it possible, but there is a reality of it in the New Testament. For instance, Luke 22, verse 24. Luke 22, 24. This is at the end where the Lord's people are taking the, uh, the, the Lord's table. It is at the Passover. And Christ is telling them that He's going to the cross. And in Luke twenty two twenty four, the Word of God says there was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Pride and, and envy and jealousy produced a strife of division as to who among the twelve at this time, or no, at the eleven at this time, that is going to be greatest in the kingdom going to be greatest in the church. Going to be greatest among the uh, apostles. Who's going to be greatest? Who's going to be recognized as the top man here? Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Many years later, this is the beginning of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul going out of the church at Antioch. Acts 15, 39. The Scripture says, and the contention was so sharp between them, that is between Paul and Barnabas, was so sharp between them that they, de- that they departed asunder one from another. Two missionaries that had laid side by side in the first missionary journey, having returned to the church, having fought the battles, had come back to the assembly, given a report of God's work, having gone to Jerusalem, having defended the gospel against the, the error of, of, of Judaism, and then coming back to the Lord's church in Antioch, and now, after some time, ready to go out again on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark, who left, and Paul says, no, that's not a good idea. He left us in the beginning. Not a good idea. Let him mature more. Let him grow up some. And Barnabas said, no, we're taking him. And Paul says, no, we're not. And so Barnabas leaves and he takes with him John Mark and they, they go up to um, Cyprus and then so- Paul and Silas are sent by the church, the church sending out Paul and Silas. There's a division. And by the way, the end of that story is not written with a period at the end of this. Later on in Paul's ministry, he writes, send John Mark to me. He's profitable for the ministry. Praise the Lord. Somebody who makes a mistake 
in the early days, who makes a mistake. Now, in the middle of things, John Mark could have said, no, I'm not going to allow this division. I'm not going to go. Barnabas, you go because you're sent from this church. I'll stay back a while. But he didn't say that, did he? Barnabas could have said, John Mark, look, we can't have this kind of division. You stay here. You mature a little. But that didn't happen either. What happened? Division. Strife. And yet Paul can write later, send John Mark because he's profitable for the ministry. Now he's mature. Now he knows what it is to stay by the stuff in the midst of a storm. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 11. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, calls them brethren here, uh, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? And walk as men, like lost people. First Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Go over there with me. I want to show you some words. Galatians 5, 19. Paul writes now, the works of the flesh are manifest. This is what the works of the flesh are. He's writing to the churches in the region of Galatia. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then we drop down to verse 20, where he says in Galatians 5, 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, and then he uses the word variance. The Old English word variance comes from a Greek word which means strife. So there's strife in the, uh, in, in, that are involved here. Strife is a work of the flesh. It is not a work of the spirit. Okay? The English word strife shows up three words later. Emulations, wrath, and then strife again. Different English, different, same English word, different Greek word, this is strife with much contention. The first strife is just strife. The second one is strife with much contention. In other words, we began this strife between us. Now we are amplifying it. Now we're magnifying it. And the next word is seditions. The word seditions means disunity and division. And the final word in verse 20 is heresies. Doctrinal conflicts in the Lord's churches, producing this, partly producing this division and strife. This prayer presupposes that there can be disunity and division in the Lord's churches. And the New Testament confirms it to be true. But this prayer also presupposes that it is possible for the Lord's church local church to function in unity one with another. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. I'll quote this verse three, uh, two or three more times before I'm through with this message. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Here Paul writing to the church at Philippi. By the way, the only church that Paul addresses where he does not address any known sin. There's just a little hint at the beginning of chapter 3, that there might be something, but he doesn't declare it plainly. This whole epistle was written to commend the church for all that they were involved in. He does not at all condemn them for anything in that assembly. Read it through again. I would encourage you to do so. 
So he writes to commend them. And in chapter 1, verse 20 says, 27 says, Only let your conversation, your manner of life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. One mind, one spirit, committed to get the gospel out. Let me hear that going on in your church. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul continues. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, and then verse 5 ends, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. Being of one mind, and then he continues on. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nations, among whom ye, this church, shines as lights in the world. Ye, plural, you, this church, you Philippians are shining as lights in the world holding forth what? The Word of Life. <clears throat> this church was a light holding forth the Word of Life. Paul begins in chapter 1, culminates in chapter 2, close to the end of chapter 2, again with the same theme. You are like-minded, like-purposed, like-spirited in this effort to get the Gospel out to others. And in fact, before the end of this book, He will commend them for the great sacrifice that they made in sending Him an offering, putting themselves in need and promising them that God will provide all your need through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That verse is often just jerked right out of the context of things. And on the lips of Christ professing Christians all over the world that have no need in the sense that they have not sacrificed for the Gospel to the point where they now have need. Now, I'm not saying that God calls everyone to do that. God has called my wife and I on occasion to give to the point where we didn't have. And God showed Himself to be a God faithful to provide our need. The church at Philippi did the same thing. Gave for the Gospel to go forth through the Apostle Paul till they had need. And then God, through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, writes them a promise at the end of the chapter and says, God's going to provide your need that you have put yourself in for the sake of the Gospel. Listen to these verses that are taken out of context. Go back and study them in the context of where they're fine or where they're found. 
and see what it really means, this promise. Not what is just thrown out. I can do all things through Christ. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I can, you can? Well, walk on water then. Jump off of a tall building and see if God will keep you from splattering on the sidewalk. If you can do all things, let's do it. Put it in this context. What is Paul talking about? What is Paul dealing with there? I'll get to that verse some other time. There's a reason why Paul inserted that verse at that point. That they also may be one in us. Not only one among themselves, but now says that they may be one in us. Now, again, there are two possible ways to interpret that they may be one in us. The first is that Every true Christian is bound in God, God in Him, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and we are in Christ. We are one. Inseparably one based upon the covenant of grace. One on the fact that God chose us in eternity past. One because Christ died for us at Calvary's cross. We are brought into a relationship with God where we cannot be ever, ever separated from Him. When God saves us, based upon that everlasting covenant of grace, and not based upon our efforts to stay in unity with God. There is a oneness that we have with God that we don't have to pray for because it exists and has existed for all eternity and shall exist into eternity future. God made sure of that. They're mine. And I am theirs. So that's not the unity that we're talking about here. That unity is not based upon us making sure we don't get out of Christ somehow. Okay? And Paul says, who shall separate us? Or who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 8, 33. The question is rhetorical. Nobody can lay anything at the ch- as a charge against God's elect. The next question, who is he that can condemn? Nobody can condemn us if we're in Christ. And then the next question, who shall separate us? And he goes down this whole list of verses and the conclusion is nothing can separate us from God. Nothing. And so it's confirmed in the Scriptures that once in Christ you are secure and safe. But, the unity spoken of in this text is different from that. Is different than that. The first mention of the unity in this prayer was a request that unity might exist between the members of the Lord's church. The second mention of unity is request that there might be a continual unity of purpose between the members of the Lord's church with God. They may be one in us with God. Again, this prayer presupposes two things. One is that a true Christian church might be divided from God and His purpose. That they might be a true church, but be divided from God and His purpose. 
You need only read the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, to see that exists. You don't have to go that far. You can read some of the epistles. But the second presupposition is this, that it is possible for a local church to be walking in unity with God and with God's purposes. According to the Scriptures, the biblical purpose of a local church is twofold. The first is that the local church is an organization chosen by God to carry the Gospels into the known world. To carry the Gospel into the known world. The second purpose is that the local church is that ordained organization chosen by God to build up, to edify, to spiritually strengthen the saints that have come into the kingdom by being born again as babes desiring the sincere milk of the Word and they can grow. And that takes place in the context of a local church. Where do you find that, Brother Pat? Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Our Lord is speaking here in Matthew 28 and He says to someone, either to all Christians in general, as I read recently, somebody said, this has nothing to do with the local church, it has to do with everybody as a Christian, or to the apostles, or to the local church. Only three options here. Who is He speaking to? Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Make disciples out of all nations. What? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What? teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Who is he talking to here? Just the apostles? And then this is complete. Finished. We have nothing to do with it. All Christians in general, then every man, woman, and child that is a professing believer in Christ can go into the mission field, can baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and can teach to observe all things. Anybody that's a believer can do that. The rest of the New Testament does not bear that out, does it? So who is he talking to? Talking to his church. Talking to the local church that he organized on the earth while he was here. And so, two things you're supposed to do, he says, before he leaves to go to the Father. You take the Gospel into the world. Do everything in your power to get the Gospel into the world. Make disciples of all nations, out of every ethnic people. And then you teach them to observe what I have commanded. You engage in teaching and preaching the Word of God so they're growing. And we see this borne out. Again, this prayer presupposes that a a true local church may function in agreement with God. With what God has purposed for that church to do. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together, all of you, striving together for the faith of the gospel. By the way, the Greek behind that striving together is that you are like a symphony. Every Peace. Every instrument has its place. And it sounds beautiful when everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right, brother? 
an orchestra with a flute out of tune, or piano out of tune. All of a sudden, boop, there's a noise here that is not together. Right? You know it is. That's the word behind this striving together. A symphony. A people diverse and distinct, but laboring together for the one cause of the gospel. The book of the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7 8. This is typical of the church at Philadelphia. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write these things, saith he who that is holy, he that is true. Philippians 3 7 and 8. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, this one says to this church. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Four. Here's the reason why I've set this door open in front of you. You have only a little bit of strength. Do you do realize, don't you, brethren, we cannot open the gospel door into nations that are closed, but God can? That we don't have the strength and ability to do that, but God can? What else? Thou hast kept my word. And thou hast not denied my name. The church at Philadelphia. I'll open a door for you because you've kept my word. You, you, this church is bound together to do what God has said for them to do. And that that church bound together in this purpose, God says, I'm going to open a door for you that no man can shut. Unity in the local church is revealed in several areas. Let me just quick... I don't know what time it is. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to worry about it. I can't see it. And just stay with me a minute. I'm almost through. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12 and then 25 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and then 25 through 27. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Okay? Verse 12. Now verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body. Referring to the same body. And that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all members rejoice with it. Now ye, this church at Corinth, are the body of Christ and members in particular. The first aspect that I want to deal with this morning and just touch on it is this. We are to be united in our efforts to care one for another. I've seen some of that this past week with this storm. People checking on people. People opening up their house. People making sure that other people were taken care of. This cannot happen except in the context of a local church. And this is what Paul is dealing with here. In this chapter, this local church at Corinth, if you are a member of it, you watch out for the other members. But more than that, if one of them is grieving, you grieve with them. If one of them is rejoicing and being honored, you rejoice with them. You come together as one in this whatever's going on in this person's life. 
The second verse I want to look at this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Ephesians 4, verse 11. For what purpose? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ, the local church. The apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers given to the church so that they might be built up spiritually so the local church can grow and be strengthened. And later on in this chapter, four verses later in verse 16, Paul talks about how each person in this church, every joint, every uh, person is providing what the body needs to grow. So we are to be united then in our efforts to teach the Word of God so that every member may be useful in their efforts to help each other grow spiritually. There's a concept of the local church that's missing in our day. The pastor's here to teach us. The deacons are here to take care of the finances. The uh, worship team is here to, to worship and do what they do. And, and, and the rest of you are here. Just give me your money. Or something like that. Well, the New Testament concept is that every one is essential for the rest. That every member is absolutely important and critical to the function of the whole body. And so the teaching of the Word of God equips them in their purpose and in their certain abilities to do for the whole body what needs to be done. As a pastor, I have my responsibility. But every member has that. For the perfecting of the saints, that's my responsibility in teaching the preaching the Word of God. For maturing the saints. And then the next, for the work of the ministry. The Word here changes It is not my responsibility now, but the saints' responsibility to do the work of the ministry. So the whole church is ministering one to another. Not just the pastor ministering to individual. But every member of the church fulfilling the ministry. So if God raises up a man to send to the mission field, God's purpose in that is to send him. He's going to fulfill his aspect of the ministry out of this local church. God raises up a teacher for a Sunday school or for teaching children. That's their aspect of doing what they can. Or, or a deacon or a woman to help another, an older woman help a younger woman. What God raises up in the church is to help the whole assembly. And that can't happen without everybody understanding that they have a place and you're unified in that. What's my place? What's your place? Jesus Christ was not praying for Christians in general when He prayed this, but for each member of each of His churches. If you are not a member of one of the Lord's churches, this prayer does not apply to you. This particular aspect does not apply to you. That doesn't mean that Christ hasn't prayed for you. It doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that you might be useful. I'm just saying the answer to this particular prayer does not apply to you unless you are a member of a church 
That's what he's praying for. There are other prayers that the Lord has prayed that applies to all Christians. But in this text, John 17, 21, he's praying for those that will believe and that will be church that will be gathered into churches. So all true members of the Lord's churches are entirely dependent upon Him. That's the conclusion. The second conclusion, though, is this, that all true members of the Lord's churches are dependent upon each other. There are no lone rangers in the Lord's church. I've met a lot of them throughout my ministry. People just do their own thing. Go do your own thing. But you cannot do your own thing in this assembly unless... You are bound heart and mind and soul to this assembly. Then you can do your thing because then it's going to minister to the assembly to all the saints. Thirdly, the local church functions as each part, each member helps others to spiritually increase. And as each member helps where they can in the spread of the gospel. I announce things from the pulpit about this mission field or that mission field, about this missionary or that missionary. I announce it to you. And I say to you, go home and pray. Why? Why don't I just make the decision? But I don't function outside of what this assembly wants to do. But Brother Pat, elders are to rule. Yes, by consent. My consent. Not as a master with a whip, this is what we're going to do. But by consent of the assembly, we move forward step by step in serving our God in the generation in which we live. And then come back again. Philippians 1.27 That may I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. The third aspect of unity is that we are unified in our efforts in the spread of the Gospel. We are unified in our efforts to watch out and care for one another. We are unified in our efforts to build each other up spiritually. And we are unified in our efforts to spread the Gospel into the world as much as God gives us ability to do so. That's a local church functioning the way the Lord intended it to do. That's not going on a lot in a lot of churches. But that's how God intends it to church, church to do it. And this last statement, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. This unity that I'm praying for among the members and then the church in unified, unified with Me and My purposes, this unity that I'm praying for has an end result. That the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. He had just prayed in John 17.20, for those who would believe on Him through the preached Word in the future. Now he prays that his churches might join him in their efforts to bring his message to the masses so that they might believe that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners from their sins. That the world might believe that I have been sent by the Father. The world, brethren, Brethren, needs to know that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was an act of God. It was a divine act. God sent Him. He's not some martyr. 
There's not some second person of the Godhead decide one day He's just going to come to earth and do His own thing. God sent Him. That verse that we hear so often, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave, He gave His only begotten Son. God sent Him. The Lord needs to know that. Why is that important? God sent His Son to save sinners. Why is that important to you if you're not a Christian? That God has an interest in saving sinners from their sins. Is it possible that God loves sinners? The Bible says so. Is it possible that He made a way for sinners to come into a good relationship with Him? The Bible says so. How did He do that? God sent His Son to accomplish that. The world needs to know that. The world needs to know that the coming of the Lord Jesus was an act of God related to the salvation of sinners. Wasn't God just showing up and I'm going to give you a good example. You follow me. Follow this good example. Everything's going to be okay. No. This Son of God was sent in relation to saving sinners. He shall, you shall call His name Jesus. Why? Because He shall save His people from their sins. That's my purpose. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's my purpose, He said. And the world needs to know that. And they need to hear it out of the mouth of the individual members of a local church. Out of the, as, as a church is a light in a dark world, as Philippian, the church at Philippi was. And thirdly, the world needs to know that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was an act of God related to His churches being the, His being the His instrument in His hand in the spread of the Gospel. Why are you here, Brother Pat? Why have you come to Northeast India? Because I was sent by a church to preach the Gospel. Which church was that, Brother Pat? Well, Community Baptist Church in Elmendorf, Texas sent me. What, some, some organization, some large mission organization didn't send you? No, no, just, just, just a, a local church. Well, how are you supported? Well, other local churches are supporting me. I was up in Canada and I was preaching and teaching to a whole group of Reformed Baptists. And, and the question is, uh, and setting before them the work of the, in India. And the question is, who, who, what mission organization has sent you? I am not sent from a mission organization. I am sent from a local church. You're sent from a local church. Well, how do they get you in? I said, God opened the door. Well, how are you supported? Other churches of like faith and practice are supporting me. Not one of them would support me and the work in India. Why? Because I wasn't sent by a mission organization. They could not support a missionary sent by a local church. You think that's rare? No, it's common. Very common. And so all over India, as I did in Mexico, with these little bitty village churches, I said to them, you know what? God could use you to take the Gospel into the whole world. What? We're, we're day laborers. We work in rice fields. We come home to, to, to mud houses with a thatched roof. 
God, and you're telling us God could use us to spread the gospel? How's that possible? We don't know anything. You'll learn. How's that possible? We're not rich. Don't have to worry about that. God does that part. You give what you got. You give what you can. You sacrifice for the cause. God will use you. And there's a church in a remote village in the mountains of Mexico that supports the work in India. Because when that church was organized, I taught them the same thing. And the churches in the state of Tripura and Megalia are involved now in getting the Scripture portions out to other places in northeast India. And they are meeting together. These, these people are meeting together to translate the Scriptures that are in error in their language and they're fixing it. Yes, I'm helping them. But they are doing something in the hand of God. And now, word is getting out all over northeast India about what a handful of churches with hardly any amount of money can do. They're building their own church buildings. From the little tithes and offerings that come in from day laborers. They're supporting their own pastors. Yes, he's by uh, vocation, he has to work. But they're giving their pastors some money. They're sacrificing to do what they can to get the gospel out of northeast India. That's a big area, by the way. Yes. Little village churches with membership of 12 or 15 or 20, 25 or so. They're not talking three, 400 church members. They're not talking about rich people. We're talking about a handful of Christians that understand God prayed that we might be one with Him in His purpose in this world. It may be so with us. Because it's not about the numbers and it's not about the money. It's about our relationship with our God. And there are already, that I know, there are churches larger than we are. Much, much larger than we are. With, with budgets that far exceed anything that we might think about coming to. That do less for missions. And have less emphasis on getting the gospel out. Than this little church stuck in the backwaters of Texas. We need to see ourselves as an instrument in God's hand. Fulfilling God's purpose. Why has God established a church? Why? There's a reason. God does everything on purpose. And for a purpose. Why has He done such a thing? I've seen Him. I've seen Him take obscure churches that I've pastored. Stuck away in little corners between two cornfields, when the whole of every pastor that ever came into the pulpit said that there's a city of a million people there and you're 12 miles outside and stuck in the middle of two cornfields. Why? And God's going to use us. Don't you worry about that. Don't you worry about that. God's going to use us. And He did. 
Have we set our heart and minds? What does God want from us? What does the Scripture teach that God wants from us? Then let's be about doing it. But we're small, Brother Pat. Let's do about doing it. And then God will take care of the rest, brother. Let's pray together.